The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Good to have you guys joining me. For another episode. <laughs> Why am I talking weird now? I don't know. It's very bizarre. Um, very special guest this week, Mr. Barry Levinson, legendary director, um, has a new film out called The Survivor. And, oh man, it's a really um, uh, harrowing, harrowing, I don't know if that's the right word. It's really a beautiful film, even though it's about a tough subject. It's about a uh, guy who has to box in the concentration camps in order to survive, basically. And it kind of goes back and forth in time of showing his time in the camps and the time afterwards of dealing with, you know, all of the guilt of that time and searching for a woman he was in love with. So it's a real interesting story. It's based on a true story of someone's life. Um, And Barry, with his masterful hand, does a great job. It's an coming out on HBO. So we had to talk about that film, a little bit about his career and everything. I hope you guys enjoy it, especially my film nerds out there. Um, it's nice to talk to somebody uh, like Barry and kind of get, you know, some background on his process and everything. Um, and let me tell you, the film is worth just seeing this actor's transformation alone uh, is really amazing. Guys, what a week. Oh my God, so much happened this week. I can't cover it all. <laughs> I don't have a lot of time today, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, let me start with the Dave Chappelle incident on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. I'm sure you guys heard about that. It was so bizarre where he was, I think he was finishing up his set and he was attacked on stage. And there's video of it. Um, I think Chris Rock and Jamie Foxx <laughs> I think Bust no, I was I think Buster Rhymes and Jamie Foxx got up and kicked the guy's ass or something like that. I think Chris Rock came on stage too. So surreal. It was so just bizarre, you know. And I have to say this, it was shocking, but I wasn't surprised. You know what I mean? Um I mean it's shocking to see somebody rush on stage, you know, especially on an event like that, and for that to happen. But I guess in the wake of the Will Smith incident at the Oscars, and I'm sure you guys feel like that, we're just, we're not surprised, right? It's like, well, yeah, this is kind of this world that we're in. Like, the fact that this kind of shit happens. It's this weird um, combination of feelings of of uh, shock but not surprise. And um, what's ironic is that ex- that is exactly the way that I feel felt about the Roe versus Wade news. Um, the uh, argument document that was leaked to Politico earlier this week, Justice Alito 
has, you know, based on this document, um, let it be known that Roe v. Wade will most likely be overturned. And this was, I believe, a first draft of an argument um, of writing from in the majority opinion. This has never happened before where this process has been leaked like this, you know. So, you know, it's it's kind of like blowing our minds. We're, we're all in a state of shock, <laughs> both that this thing, that we would be privy to this, and the fact Roe v. Wade is overturned. And yet, I am not surprised. It's the same feeling. I'm shocked that these motherfuckers would actually do this. And yet, I am not surprised. Because first of all, this has been coming for a long time, right? Um, I mean, Christian conservatives uh, hijacking the Republican Party along the way have been, they've been working on this for like the past 50 years, almost 50 years, I think. Roe Wade was 73, so it's been almost 50 years. As the second this thing was decided, those motherfuckers were on that train. And, you know, once they, and when I say took control of the Republican Party, here's what I think a lot of people don't realize how much Republicans as a party have fucking changed, man. I mean, it really is. Shocking. I mean, you would think Republicans were progressives when you look at some of the things that they stood for. Everything from labor unions to minimum wage to right to work to equal pay, things like that. But Republicans used to be the party that was on the other side of the abortion debate as a party, not just as people. In fact, you know, this debate wasn't as partisan in terms of party so much back then as it was just in terms of culture. You know, I think in both parties, they kind of shared equally pro-life, pro-choice, I believe, as opposed to the parties being completely against it as a party. At least it seemed that way to me. Um, like, as an example, the Roe v. Wade decision was decided with five Republican nominees, not uh, judges who were appointed by Republicans, Five of them voted in favor of Roe v. Wade. That's crazy when you think of it and how times have have changed because of that, you know. Um, but it, it has been the Republican Party being taken over by um, the conservative Christian movement, especially in the early 80s with the ascent of Ronald Reagan and his brand of conservatism and taking over that party, the moral majority, and being the center of the party's ideology, you know, and this has been a long time coming. And every time there are judges appointed, whether it's at the federal level or Supreme Court, these motherfuckers are not kidding around, man. You talk about some lobbying motherfuckers, you know, and the the fervor by which they fight these fights because they've been playing the long game on this of um, making sure that the right justices are appointed at the right time, you know, and pushed over the finish line by Mitch fucking Turtlehead McConnell by denying Obama his Supreme Court nominee, you know, when he went to appoint Merrick Garland and then pushing through Amy Coney Barrett, when that should have been Biden's nominee, when there was a month ago in the Trump administration. That's two justices, you guys. That's two. 
let alone Trump being president during that time. Whereas if Hillary had been president, you could have had, you know, those last three or whatever it was. And it's amazing the implications that that has had, you know. It really just blows my mind. When you, when you think about why is voting so important, you know, why is it so important? And when people get caught up in the cult of personalities and everything. But let me, you, here is a fact, you guys. Like, we could talk about Trumpies and the people that vote for Trump and whether races and all this, but there is a huge group of people, not a small group, but a huge group of people that voted for Trump and basically making sure Mitch McConnell was, you know, going to be the leader of the Senate. For this reason alone, alone, <laughs> alone, the other reasons just didn't matter. Fine, we'll take that. I may agree with that, may agree with that. Don't give a fuck. Who's the judge appointee? Thank you. You have my vote. And that's what I mean about the long game. Not fucking around. And this is the result of that. Now, if this is done in two way, it's not like we can stop it. Those who would be against this. I personally feel this is a horrible decision. Um, I don't... I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so who am I to say Roe v. Wade was ruled, you know, incorrectly or whatever? Um, I just know that, you know, it seemed to me the line that they're drawing from the 14th Amendment, you know, and the, the privacy uh, clause in there and the way that it was decided in terms of birth control and interracial marriage and all that, and that a woman has a right of privacy in deciding her own health care and drawing that line to abortion, I've got no problem with that. Um, so I'm on that side that whether it was argued effectively or not, that it's still a good decision. There are some decisions that, you know, we don't know how it was argued or whatever that might be, it might have been argued well, but it was probably a poor decision like Plessy versus Ferguson. I don't care what that was based on. That was a poor motherfucking decision. You know, thank God Brown v. Board of Education overturned it. I'm not a law student, by the way, guys. All this stuff is, I'm, I'm an amateur on this. So forgive me if I get things wrong or whatever. This is just my amateur take on it. Okay, I don't, I'm not an expert in these areas. So this is, you know, like most of you guys, my, um, my amateur status take on it, right? So, but here's the thing. So what does this even mean right now? Like, what happens? Does um, does it mean that we go back to the days of back alley abortions? I don't know if it means that, you know, but I know one thing um, that this directly hurts poor uh, women, women that don't have um, the means because rich women and well-to-do women will always be able to get an abortion. And that's always been the case. In fact, the Roe v. Wade decision, if anything, made it safe at the time for poor women to make these decisions. You know, they didn't have to think about, they might die from having a fucking abortion. And that's a huge thing, you know, you know, or in these cases, uh, many times women going to have abortion, have an abortion. You have all these idiots out there shaming them, making them feel bad. They already feel fucking bad. Who the fuck are you to make them feel worse for making their decisions? You know, people forget how abortion clinics were bombed and things like that. And, 
you know, doctors are threatened and all kinds of nastiness that's been done in this supposed pro-life side. And during all of this, to me, it's so cynical that a party that claims that it's the Democratic Party who they're elitist and they're out of touch with working people and poor people and all this, you know, have the nerve, you know, to make it, you know, so difficult for <laughs> women that are struggling just to just to get fucking by. What, you, they're supposed to move to another state to do something like this? This is ridiculous. It's so fucking ridiculous. Um, and it, it, it's, just, it's just unfathomable that this thing could be overturned right now. Um, it really, I was so upset early this week. It's just crazy. I want to cover this more with maybe some guests and things like that coming up. So look forward to that. We covered a little bit with Liz Winstead. Um, couple months ago she's awesome um so once again poor women are left on the sidelines there you go congratulations uh republicans congratulations you know that's <laughs> i feel like that's all i can say right now but this fight is not over i believe there's a lot that that can be done not only at the state level and by the way there's going to be a lot of states that are immediately going to outlaw abortion and that's going to be fucked up there are going to be states where it's going to be legal and that's going to be interesting but i believe that there's something that can be done at the federal level and if it's going to be done at the federal level it better be done before these midterms although now we have an issue remember i've been down on the democrats about this midterm i'm not so sure if it's you know if this issue is a major issue right now the democrats may have just found an issue to rally behind you know and really be completely present as to, you know, the severity of not showing up in a midterm election, especially at the local level, especially at the state level. You know, the people who are the representatives at the state level making these laws and everything, how important these things are. It's important, man. Get out and vote. Get out and fucking vote. So anyhow, we'll be doing that, covering this, seeing how it goes, seeing if it even happens. I mean, who knows? Who even knows who leaked it? it? Some people think it could have been somebody from the left. Could have been somebody from the right. Don't know. Honestly, don't fucking care. But it'll be fascinating if it doesn't happen. I think it is going to happen. It's already decided. So I think we should really gird ourselves for what comes after. Um, because to me, well... Whatever. <laughs> I'm so flustered right now. I'm just so flustered about this, guys. But I'm going to try to put my energy into seeing what can happen at the federal level in terms of protecting these rights through law. And we'll see what happens. And we'll stay in touch about it. Um, right? Okay. All right. Enough said on that. That just makes me sad right now. Um, let's talk about the movies. So <laughs> we're going to talk to Barry Levinson right after this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. 
All right, welcome back, everybody. You know, sometimes we have interesting guests, we have fun guests, we have informative guests, but sometimes you just got to bring in the legends. You just got to do it. And there's just no getting around it. And this is one of those people I've admired for, whew, man, since the, the beginning of my knowledge of his work. He's done films such as Rayman, of course, Diner, Justice for All, Good Morning Vietnam, so many classics. He continues to produce things and direct things that are just that are just great. I don't know how he does it for so long, but his latest film for HBO called The Survivor is an amazing film, and I'm so happy to have him talk to us about it. Barry Levinson, welcome to Black on the Air. It's so nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. As I was saying, Barry, this is... Uh, it's funny to use the word beautiful for a film like this because of the subject matter, you know, but it, it really is beautiful in many ways. It's so touching, this story of uh, Harry Haft who survives uh, the Holocaust through boxing, basically. What drew you to this particular story right now? You know, it's, it's odd how things start. You know, I got the script sent to me and uh, it reminded me of a moment when I was a kid, like five years old. And um, I live with my parents and my grandparents. And all of a sudden, uh, this man showed up at the door. Hmm. And it turns out it was my grandmother's brother. Hmm. And I never heard her ever talk about a brother. I never heard her talk about anything, basically, uh, in terms of her past in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so I had no idea there's a brother. And he stayed for two weeks at our house mm -hmm. and it was a small house. We live with my parents, my grandparents, and they put him in my bedroom in a cot on the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. and the first night I woke up and he was, I, cause he was yelling in his sleep and tossing and turning and he's having uh, obviously nightmares, you know, yeah. even at that age, I, I knew that much. And it went on night after night after night. Every night, somewhere in the middle of the night, he would just yell out and woke me up and he'd be tossing and he's in his sleep and saying things that I didn't understand because it was in a foreign language. Hmm. And he'd fall back asleep. And after two weeks, he left and then moved on to New Jersey, I believe. And no one talked about him or anything about his past or anything that happened. It's just kind of a mystery for you at that time. Yeah. And so I'm, when I'm about 16 years old, I'm sitting with my uh, mother in the kitchen and we're talking. And she said, well, you know, Simka, and that was his name. Mm -hmm. He was in the concentration camp. And when that, and I said, what do you mean? He was, in, he was in a concentration camp. He says, oh yeah. And that's the first time I ever knew that wow. because they never talked about any of that. So mm -hmm. in, when I was re reading the script is when I remembered that moment. Mm. And I'm thinking as the script, basically, I, I thought addressed was not just simply the camp, but it's after the camp. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what we call it now. Yes, he survived exactly. the camp, but in order to really live a life and not be haunted by the past, mm -hmm. and that applies to people, whether or not in, uh, in terms of concentration camps or fighting in war or horrific things that have happened to them, many people are affected by that, that we mm -hmm. now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's an interesting way to kind of look at this man's journey, because it's mm -hmm. a true story. And um, that's how it sort of began. Did you know anything about Harry Haft before you read this script? Was this your introduction to him? No, I didn't know anything about him. And there wouldn't really, um, 
you know, his, his son wrote the book mm-hmm. and the conversations he had with his father at a certain point in his life, late in life. And um, so I knew nothing about uh, that story at all. Mm-hmm. And then he's sort of also telling what happened about growing up and how his father, you know, the relationship that he had with his father and, and how strained it was, et cetera, and uh, how difficult it was, you know, dealing with him. And uh, you say, well, this, this could be a worthwhile, you know, piece if we can, you know, handle this correctly. When I was a kid, I remember my family's from Chicago and uh, we lived here in California and my uncle had been to Vietnam and I remember he was like living in the attic, I guess, of the his mom's house. And I remember going up there and he was asleep and I just kind of quietly tiptoed in and he went, <laughs> like the way he woke up was like, it sent a chill through me, you know, and he had drug problems his whole life. He died too young and just the effect that I knew that that war had on him was so visceral in that moment. I never forgot that, Barry. It was just emblazoned on my brain. You know, what's interesting about your film, too, is we don't deal enough with the effects that we talk about the greatest generation and the great World War II and all that, but the effects that any war can have on individuals for, you know, in this case, you know, it's the Holocaust, and that's very specific about it, but it's a very powerful thing to have to deal with. No, it is, and... uh you know, when you think about, you know, today in terms of, you know, homeless, and then you go a lot of those ex-vets. Yeah, that's were right. In, whether or not, the, you know, wherever they were fighting in our various wars that we've had, uh, a lot of them can't get over it and they can't get the help. No. In some cases, they themselves don't even recognize the issues. Mm-hmm. But how high those numbers may be, it's not, you know, some people can can deal with horrific situations and somehow uh, are not affected in a sense that it continues to control their lives in that regard. Mm-hmm. Other people can't. And uh, we don't really pay the attention that we need to yeah. when people need help. The idea that you're haunted by something mm-hmm. through every day of your life, it's, it's, it's quite frightening, actually. Yeah. I was reading about Harry Haft. I didn't know about it. And I mean, Bear, you could have just made a movie about his time in the camp. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating you know, his escape and what happened then and everything. He and his brother ran like a smuggling operation, like at the beginning of the war. <laughs> There's all these things that that his his life before he even got out was fascinating, too. Yeah, there, there, there was, you know, obviously quite a few incidents. You know, that's sort of like a whole journey, yeah. which is one way you can do it. And this one is just more specific to right. what we're talking about. How does he get on with his life once he survived? Yeah. How does he deal with? A marriage, how does he deal with children, all of those particular issues. This is one of those films, too, that Ben Foster was amazing in this, who plays the title role. How soon did you decide him? But I know you had worked with him before. I mean, in a totally different situation, of course. He's such a young man. But in this, like, did you think about him early on? Was he uh, already being mentioned as the role for this? Or You know, I can't remember all the details. I put Ben in his first feature. Yeah. which was Liberty Heights uh, with Adrian Brody. And uh, he's developed into a great, great character actor. Yeah. I think one of the most outstanding actors of his generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's really capable of doing amazing work, as, as you'll see in this film. Yeah. And his name came up, and I thought, well, this, he, can really, um, he, he can really nail this if we handle this correctly. And uh, 
his commitment to it, you know, because he had to lose, he didn't have to uh, in quite that way, but it was, mm. you know, to be able to portray a character who's literally almost being starved yeah. to death. Uh, he wanted to lose weight, which he did. He lost 62 pounds for the role wow. uh, leading up to the beginning of shooting and then had to, we shut down for a while and then he gained uh, the weight later. Wow. So his commitment was just uh, uh, incredible. Were you ever concerned about that? <laughs> for somebody to have to go through that kind of transformation? I mean, as a director, I don't want to lose my star. You're going to disappear. He had a lot of, you know, medical um, guidance on all of that. So it was handled very, very well how to do it. So, you know, he was rather meticulous about mm -hmm. how to go about that as opposed to, I'm just going to not eat. Right. So not, not a good answer to do that. But so he handled it very carefully. And then we, when we shut down, then obviously he was on a, a rampage of eating everything. <laughs> right. But also one of the challenges that in this particular film, like, you know, it's not just losing weight. He has to box when he's emaciated, you know, so he's got to lose weight and train like at the same time uh, how difficult was that it's obviously difficult his commitment as an actor is extraordinary yeah. you, you can't explain it all but he has this um, great you know um, commitment he would train he would go through uh the choreography of mm -hmm. it and this differs very much from like a real boxing films in that uh you know, he wasn't a sophisticated boxer, uh, which is even more difficult to quite deal with because you don't really want to, you know, get hurt. So um, th that was an added uh, thing to to apply to it because this is messy boxing to a man who was never trained properly. Are you a boxing fan? Did you have to go back and immerse yourself in some of that world as well? I mean, I, I, I was a boxing fan. I'm not, I mean, there aren't, there aren't really many boxers around anymore yeah. that we follow the way that I know. we did. It's not know? the same. Yeah, I agree. Some of those guys, you know, just don't exist anymore. Yeah. And, and it's drifted into more of that kind of, uh, you know, arena thing with uh, kickboxing and whatever and all that, which I'm not, I'm not a particularly big fan of that uh -huh. personally, but you know, I mean, you, you, you looked at footage of boxers just see the various styles that he might try to, mm -hmm. you know, Max Bear was one that he was watching to see the way he fought because he, uh, Bear was a, a little bit more of a brawler right. than a, a, a super sophisticated boxer. So, uh, you know, Ben, you know, watched a lot of that stuff. We talked about various boxers early on. Mm -hmm. He'd find the, the, the one that would work best for him. Mm -hmm. And as I say, he was never a great boxer. So we, that, that was part of the challenge is not to do some of the things that you would do nowadays. You know, So yeah. the, the training that he got with the people we put him together with were just terrific. Yeah. And part of his story, he was forced to box and then he's compelled to box, which, you know, usually, you know, you have a passion for this or there's other reasons why, you know, but that's an unusual way to do one of the most dangerous sports ever is that type of story the fact that he's he was in love with this girl yeah. and they were separated of the camps and then post-war how would you possibly find her yeah. not like you can look on social media right so right. what do you do so he's going to continue to box and hopefully get some attention and if she if, if she survived if just by chance yeah. she might read a sports page and see 
you know, the name Harry Haft. Yeah. That's what he's sort of hanging his hat on in a way. Yeah. Let me get the shit beaten out of me at the chance that I might find this one. I mean, that's love, Barry. That's that's uh, that's pretty special right there. Yeah. As I'm watching this, too, and I've always had this question about these types of films, and your film in particular, too. The extras. Like, do the extras have to go on this deprivation thing, too? Because they all look like they're supposed to be in the concentration camp. Or is it just a few and you make it look like it's like maybe my mind is tricking me that I think I've seen more people. You know, the uh, the people we had to do the casting, you know, had to, you know, find, you know, uh, you know, actors that were very thin mm -hmm. and look the way they did in the film. Mm -hmm. So you, you do have to pay attention to in some movies, you get some extras, you get some extras. I know, but we got to have some people that really work in the context of what we're filming. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a little bit longer period of time to get that all worked out. On the yeah. other hand, we didn't exactly have a lot of days to shoot the movie. We, we shot the whole film in 34 days. Wait, hold on a second. That is impossible. In my mind, I'm thinking this is a minimum three-month movie. You, it's impossible to shoot this movie in 34 days. How did that happen? I mean, where did you shoot this part? In Hungary? Yes, we shot in Hungary. Then we came to New York and we shot uh, in Cody Island for uh, a few days. And then we went down to Georgia for um, two days or something like to shoot the end of the, the film. But that had to move very quickly. I mean, I, that was the requirement because we didn't have a lot of money to make the move. Mm -hmm. I'm glad people think it looks really big and expensive and all that. The reality is we really had to be on our toes at all times. Okay, so to recreate the past, especially in the concentration camp, didn't you get, did you build like a camp there? Does that take up a lot of the expense trying to make all that seem authentic? Well, um, that would be uh, one of the more expensive things in the course of doing the piece. But the, the, the center part of it, it was a shutdown uh, kind of mining operation mm -hmm. there, which actually was that particular camp that he was assigned to. So there were certain buildings of that that we had. And then we built mostly what you really want. If you watch carefully, it's really the fencing. Mm -hmm. And um, we only had one functioning uh, barracks and a, and a, a sides of another. I mean, it's very much, you know, uh, visual mm -hmm. trickery. And so on the really big shots that we did, uh, we, we put in some, uh, you know, mat work mm -hmm. into it, you know, visual enhancement to make it look bigger than, in fact, it really was. And uh, that's sort of like the visual, you know, things that you can pull mm -hmm. off so that you're not actually building a whole camp with all of the stuff in it. But we did make it look, even if you were there, it looked very credible because of the, the way the angles were, it all looked like quite an overwhelming uh, facility. And you shot the camp stuff first when he was, you know, in that state. Yeah. And I assume then... In the 40s, he was in a certain state, and then he got a little thicker for, I guess, the last part. Of so how long were those breaks when he was eating his shakes and burgers? I, I think we shut down for, you know, five, six mm -hmm. weeks. Wow. In between. And and then we all, you know, regrouped, you know, to, to work again. What's the most difficult part of trying to do a film like this directors always say every film is impossible until it's finished right <laughs> like you know it seems like this is never going to get done oh my god how did i get into this you know and then when it's finished oh that's not so bad i guess you <laughs> is that a good explanation of how films go look i mean yeah you have a certain responsibility because of 
uh, there's a lot of, you know, footage of, say, the mm-hmm. camps. So you don't want to do something that doesn't, you know, is incredible to it. So you, 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 you do really examine that sure, stuff very sure. carefully and go over it and see um, what can you do and what, what facility are we talking about, et cetera. So you want to get as much authenticity as you can for that because there's so much documentation mm-hmm. that exists. So we spent a lot of time going over those details and then how would we shoot it? And uh, because, you know, you, you can't build, as I say, and mm-hmm. we didn't, you can't build all of that. But and then you, it comes down to, you know, the camera and what kind of grain do you want to mm-hmm. give it? So it gives it a, a harsher yeah. look to it and all of that. You, you know, you take those step by step, you know, to try to build up as much credibility. And then when you go to Coney Island and then you got to deal with that Coney Island doesn't quite look like Coney Island the way it did from the late Mm. 40s and then you say well we have to do some kind of optical work here to to enhance it and uh but it can't be too much because we wouldn't have enough money so then how do you do what you need and you have to pick and choose your angles and all that type of stuff but it's part of just filmmaking you know you're never going to get everything that you want and all the money you want so you figure well how do i do this how do i convey this so that we're paying attention to really this particular area here. And that's not always a, the panacea, it would appear. Sometimes you can be more creative when you have certain types of restrictions, don't you think? Yeah, you can figure out, Yeah, you know, sometimes you come up with some you know, trickery that uh, you'd say, look, we never really saw the whole thing, but we thought yeah. we did. And so you have to say, how much imagination would go in if you mm-hmm. do this and do that? You know, a lot of old films... It's a very creative work, and they they didn't you know they didn't build a lot of things, but they made you believe it was there, even if you never saw it. Yeah, that's true. What's the what's the most important thing for you when you're making a film about an actual person's life? Because there seems to be, you know, the responsibility to get that right. I mean, of course, not everything you're going to do probably happened necessarily. Do you feel an extra responsibility? Well, I mean, I think you have a responsibility if you're in a sense you're going to be telling someone's life, you want to be able to have the accuracy to that which you were showing. You're not going to show every everything because that's not necessary to the story. You know what I mean? But you want the the essence of that those things. However, I mean, on the other hand, look, there are a lot of bios that you've seen where about, you know, famous people and a, and a lot of it's made up, just pure made up. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, <laughs> there's, there's been some, some some doozies. Some critic criticized, well, you didn't you didn't include the so and so, whatever. And I go, no, I, there's a bunch of things we didn't include. You know, and, and he killed right. a person in a, something, and you go, no, and you didn't include it. So, you no, know, we didn't. But I think you right. got the, the I think you got the fact that he did kill a lot of people ultimately. Yeah. And how many do we have to kill? For it to be authentic, you know, you, you're going to say, all right, this basically deals with that aspect, but we don't have to just right. have every incident take place. Right. And as you said, the film was really about the PTSD of it all. Yes. You know, yeah. The, the effect that that has on a person's life. Yeah. Right. So sometimes they'll say, well, you didn't include that or whatever. And but that's a person we never even knew about. You know, if you're doing, you know, yeah. you know, Gandhi, you have other requirements. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot that we know about Gandhi going in. Yes, let's. You know what? I don't think we should show him on that whole fast thing. I don't think people would be interested. It just doesn't feel like a good story. <laughs> it just doesn't feel believable to me. Yeah, that whole not eating thing. Whatever, Gandhi, have a sandwich. <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
You know, I, I've noticed that it always seems uh, in your films where actors seem to always have their finest performances in your movies. It, it just seems to happen. Do you consider yourself a, I mean, you're very, you're a brilliant technical director, but do you consider yourself primarily an actor's director? Do you think about those things? I don't think about it. All I'm trying to do is make it seem credible yeah. and involving, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes something is credible, but it's boring. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of things in life that are credible, but they're boring. <laughs> yep, that happened. Uh, I don't think we want to see it, though. It's not entertaining. Yes. You, you want to find um, credibility and you want to find something that you believe the audience would be interested in leaning forward because you're sort of very fascinated by what's going on in terms of that character and mm -hmm. behavior, et cetera. That, that's what I'm just trying to go. I, I, I'm, I, in many cases, unless you were doing other forms, you know, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the, the, the credibility of a character for us to relate to. Right. And then be engaged by and be surprised by, but surprised in a way that's consistent with what the character actually is. Mm -hmm. In the films that I've, I've done mostly, you know, I, I need to find that real credibility factor, mm -hmm. you know, to work. Because if you were doing some of the Marvel ones, you know, you've got a, a wider range to play in because you can, you know, well, no, he's not real because he can fly and he can do this and right. burrow through mountaintops, you know what I mean? But here, you're, if you have, you know, male, female, and there's an issue about it, you have to have the credibility of it. And yet you have to find a way in that the audience is engaged in whatever the conflict is. Like doing a film like Rain Man, you know, when you're dealing with someone with autism, like Dustin Hoffman, he was funny in that, but we weren't laughing at him. There was a fine line there, you know, of being uh, engaged with that and making sure that I mean, that had to have been challenging and making sure what, you know, we don't want to cross a line here. We want to be real and all that kind of stuff, you know. Each film has its own demands. Yeah. In, in, the, in the case of Rain Man, if we go back to that, is that uh, we're, we're explaining about a uh, certain kind of mental issues, etc. And we have to be able to uh, let the audience understand that behavior. And at the same time, we have to find a way to engage the audience because if it's simply just this is the behavior and we're not actually connected to the drama of it all, you know, then, then you, you, you lose the audience. So you have to find the, the credibility to involve you in the story and at the same time, you know, uh, deal with the issue of autism and what that behavior is like. And then you have to kind of find that thin line to explain it because those two characters are not going to have a conversation. Right. I mean, they never do have a conversation right. where they're, you know, it's, he, he has these limitations mm -hmm. and then you want to explain to the audience. And on the other hand, you don't want the audience to be, all right, all right, I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> all right, Ray, man, next thing, next thing. <laughs> Barry, you're very funny. <laughs> Do you think about, like, when you're making a film as serious as this, you know, its themes are very serious. They're heartbreaking things. Do you look for areas, or maybe it happens organically, where some humor, and when I say humor, you know, things that we can relate to humor-wise, not joke humor. Right. You know what I mean? Like, do you look for, where can I bring some light in here, <laughs> you know? 
in this type of thing? Do we, like, do we need something here? Because the audience is really being pulled down here. Do you think about that as well? Well, I think what, what I try to do is, is find the, um, uh, as an example, in The Survivor, there's a lunch that they're having out, like a picnic lunch, basically in the training yeah. camp. And they're eating, you know, um, uh, various kind of sandwich food. And you, you want to find something which is a lighter moment, but at the same time is actually connected. In that case, we're talking about bigotry, racism. Uh, a very light subject, yes. <laughs> and the issues with God. Yes, yes. On one hand, you might say it's a breather, but at the same time, it's connected yeah. to, like uh, Danny DeVito says to Harry, because he's eating the sandwich, and he says, uh, Harry, do you, you know, you like that, uh, you know, you're eating ham to Harry, who's Jewish. And, and, uh, and he says, um, that's okay. You know, God doesn't watch me that closely. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, he's saying, look, God is not paying attention to me. I was in a yeah. camp. But at the same time, it's, there's a humor to it yeah. in terms of the way he expresses himself. And I think it allows for a lighter moment that still stays connected to the themes of faith and 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 mm-hmm. God and, and 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 the aspect of what is it about uh, you know a, a God in terms of us in terms of racism and all of these issues it's all mm-hmm. mixed in there because yeah. at one point um, when the one character says I never understood you know in terms of you know the Nazis you know in terms of Jews he said because he I can't remember what the lines were because you know. You know, if somebody is black, you know, but you all, all you all white people look the same. So how did yeah. who who's Jewish? Exactly. Et cetera. And that comes up in a very kind of light way that they're kind of talking about it. And uh, it's consistent with the film in a way, but it's a lighter, lighter yeah. moment because they're just kind of, you know, bullshitting when they're sitting around having a, a lunch break. Do you allow your actors to improvise a lot, especially like in scenes like that to maybe take it? you know, find some things uh, that may be a surprise or that type of thing. How much is improvisation a part in your directing? Uh, I'll play around. I, I have no problems with improvisation when somebody is, is it really can connect to it. Or sometimes I'll just say, why don't you say this, you know, hmm. in your own words mm-hmm. and, and, and see how that lands. Because I think it gives a, a, a sometimes it allows the actor in general to to kind of find a better insight into the character periodically. Mm-hmm. As sure. so sometimes little throwaway lines are, uh, are worthwhile to have because they sort of inform us. And uh, the, the, the naturalism of it, I think, is very valid to have. So yeah. I'll always kind of say, what about if we did this? What would happen if this happened? You know, what would that be like? You know, or and, and I'm talking about even in some bigger scenes, uh, there's a scene towards the latter part of the film. And, and this is where I think Ben and uh, Vicky, who plays the wife, are, are very good at that because he, he, he basically reveals a, uh, a, the secret that he's never, ever talked about, yeah. you know, which yeah. was the killing of his friend. Mm. And he finally tells the wife, and originally it said, and then uh, she gets up and she goes over and hugs him. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of like, uh, okay, and she comforts him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, for whatever reason that popped into my head, just before we were ready to shoot, I said to Vicky, don't get up and don't go over and don't hug him. And she says, well, what should I do? I said, you just don't do it. 
you know, let's just see what happens. And let's just see what happens when he has now revealed a dark secret and he doesn't mm. get comfort. What will that do? Mm. Mm. And uh, we, she did it. And uh, that particular scene is wonderful because he literally explodes with anger because yeah. he didn't get, you know, like, oh, I got some comfort because I told I told something, you know, which was deep and uh, and and troublesome. And he didn't get the the comfort that he wanted right away. And that scene developed into, I think, a very important sequence uh, moving forward from that point mm -hmm. on. Uh, and that's just simply having actors that are that you trust enough to say, let's see what happens if we do this at this yeah. particular period of time. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And then we'll do the other. If it does, I think it might give us a better moment. And so you, you always have to be open to, to try things. If uh, for me, mm -hmm. when the instinct is there, let's see what happens. You know? No, that's such a luxury to have actors like that too. And, and then thematically, he needed comfort somewhere else anyway. Yeah. You know, that's actually not where he needed comfort, you know, which when he got it, then he could have comfort with his wife, which is interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. funny how those things, the surprises can be, oh, well, how come I didn't see this before? <laughs> you know, Look, there's a learning curve in a making of a film because you're, yeah. look, you put a lot of people together that have, haven't been together. Right. And there are things that happen. And and if you see something that's really could be interesting, then you say, well, let's go down this road. Let's see what this is like, yeah. because we might find another moment here and another moment there. When it's all said and done, you know, when we walk away from a movie uh, and we we've enjoyed it, but there are certain things that we pick on. I loved when that happened with whatever, whatever. And so you may end up hitting one of those little moments that an audience that they connect to on a level and, and remember and, and, and be yeah. influential ultimately in your, in your viewing experience. Yeah. And it is amazing because you can't plan it you can't count on it. It may never happen. And then it could, as you say, it could be the most memorable thing. You know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. That's a little thing catches on and you, it, when you got the right actors mm -hmm. and you, and the environment is set up for that where it could happen. Right. If an actor feels they're really being, pressured a lot of times they start to kind of shut down yeah it's when they feel free is when little things happen a look a, a look at something a glance or whatever or a smile or any particular motion and it's captured on film and it's the right moment it has a huge impact why do you think stories of the holocaust continue to resonate i mean there have been many different types of stories and they always like when i see them at least they always resonate why aren't we done telling these stories <laughs> you know like like you know what is it about that particular story that you think continues to resonate with this to me it's as visceral when i see a film about it 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 hasn't lost its effect on me as a human being I could see something about the Romans, you know, I, it doesn't have that much yeah. of an effect on me as a human, but the Holocaust, <laughs> I know it's, it's a long time ago or whatever, but there, if I see something about the Korean War, it's not going to have the effect on me, but this has a human effect on me, this incident. The camp, uh, the, the concentration, I think, differs from most because it's hard to comprehend mm -hmm. that a, an advanced civilization of Germany you know, that prior to the, you know, uh, World War II 
in a sense, had flourished and, and, and was probably the, the center, you know, of uh, culture mm -hmm. of Europe at that point in times within music and the theater and, mm -hmm. and film and all of those things and all, so many areas, yeah. and literature, et cetera, was extraordinary, it's literally turned into a country that decided to build factories to kill people. Mm. I mean, and I think that's that's what separates it. There is a brutality to hu to humans in general that somewhere is in in us in our DNA somehow. Mm -hmm. But the idea to go to the degree that let's invent a factory and we can kill millions of people wow. very quickly that that I think is something you go. This is the most inhumane thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. It's not like there was a battle over something in a piece of land. This was. Let's do this to exterminate this group of people and, and others that we don't like as well. You know, whether they, you know, they were gay of another color or the gypsies or the whatever that ultimately were, you know, killed as well, mm -hmm. because we don't like them. And let's build a factory to get rid of them. That, I think, is hard to comprehend no matter what time we live in. Well said. I mean... Just even thinking about it in those terms, people forget that it wasn't like a group of dum dums, <laughs> you know, that did this. No, it, it's hard to comprehend how somehow a, a country can be taken over in a sense, you know, politically, and an ideology that comes along and people basically supported it mm -hmm. and not fought internally to like stop it, basically supported it and said, okay, all right. It's not like nobody knew about this. I mean, everybody said, wow, we didn't know anything. I mean, you know, uh, people in the, in the town surrounding some of these death factories, you know, mm -hmm. they, had, they had to know, but they didn't want to, uh, you know, deal with the realities of it. I lament the fact that films like this aren't on the big screen. You know, this to me, even with your limited budget, Barry, <laughs> I feel like the scope of this is still, do you have like, Ugh. Do you feel frustrated about that sometimes? I mean, God bless HBO for making films, you know. Look, I, I think that there are two. It's great that, it, look, I've done now four films that basically have come through, you know, HBO, mm -hmm. you know, from the Madoff and Paterno and Dr. Kaborkian. Sure. And um, so they've handled some, you know, difficult subject matter. And that's great. You know, one of the few places that will even attempt to do that. And then, of course, on the other hand, there are certain things that you would love to see in a theater because sure. the theater experience is something else. That's I was right. trying to explain something to someone uh, recently. I said, you know, I went to see Psycho. If, if you watch it on television now, mm -hmm. you know, there's the shower scene and you go, oh, oh. And then that's the end of that. Right. It's over. All right. Now sure. the film goes on, et cetera. I said, okay, that's the, that's the experience you get now. You know, the, oh, oh my. <laughs> and that's it. I said, I saw it in a movie theater with 2,500 people. Yeah. When the shower scene happened, the screaming through the theater of 2,500 wow. people carrying on. And then it wasn't like it was over. It took 10 minutes for that audience to settle down. Wow. It was like an experience like, whoa. And so it carried on because, you know, oh, it's over and everybody's settling down and then some people are you know, laughing and they're, yeah. holy God, 
yeah, oh, you know, and it, it took a while. Yeah. And that experience, those for various movies that, you know, that one stands out in my mind. Yeah, it was a great thing to be with a big crowd and, and all enjoying it or, you know, a giant laughs from some comedy exactly. that just knocks you out that the place is just laughing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I worked for three years with Mel Brooks on two films and Mel used to say, you know, when we would write something, he said, no, a, I want the laugh to be such that you're going to fall out of your chair yeah. and lying there you're in, the, in the aisle. You, you can't breathe. It's so funny. And the people, you know, and so yeah. he was thinking of that big audience yeah. for the laughs and everything else. And and I don't think we have that experience for the most part where there's just a big group of people just locked into that screen. and that involvement you know it's so it's a different time and you have to sort of recognize it and uh there's room for the streamers and theatrical but i don't know that the theatrical will be what the theatrical used to be are you concerned it's in danger of disappearing no i don't think it'll disappear i think it won't be what it was when you used to have the big movie palaces that showed films and you have that i think you'll have you know 250 300 people see it in Mm -hmm in various places, certain kinds of films, you know, and you might get, you might be a, some big auditorium somewhere here and there. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, I, I think what we would think of as the movies, uh, theatrical is, is, will be a different theatrical, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it'll ever go away completely. It's funny because many of my memories of some films, and sometimes when I talk to my kids about the, the film, I'll say, Oh, I remember the audience laughed really hard at that point. Like, that's part of my memory of it, you know? <laughs> or, oh, I remember, oh, God, it was, this was so funny. Everybody was laughing so hard. It's funny. It's, it's intertwined in my mind, you know, how the movie experience with the movie itself. It's so interesting how that works, you know? Absolutely. And I think in some ways, I think comedies are, um, are affected in a way that, uh, Comedy loves an audience. Uh-huh. And, and even, and I have to say this, in, in the earlier days of, con- of television and you had the comedy, there was a bigger audience in the room. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? In other words, you know, I would watch with my parents and my grandparents. Sure, you know? other people watching together. Yeah. And yeah, now yeah. Um, you might have in one household, you know, four things going on you know Wait, you're watching it on your phone <laughs> yeah. we're all sort of split up yeah. as opposed to a group uh together so i think the group experience is um is not what it was where you just there was something great about a bunch of people together gathering to watch something it's funny because i remember your film avalon kind of Thought that moment wasn't so great. <laughs> See, I loved Avalon. I just I brought it. It's one of it's one of my favorites of yours. I think people say Diner was your most personal film. Could about that. I feel Avalon, if I'm going to choose one, feels like a very personal film that you made. Diner, you know, which was great fun and the friends that I had. Uh, Avalon was really, uh, in a sense, you know, connected to the, you know, the breakup of basically, you know, the extended family. Yeah. So I think by nature, there's something about that that sort of touches me in the in the sense that it it came to an end. You know, mm-hmm. that extended family of uncles and aunts and this and yeah. that, all the confusion that went with it is something that's drifted further away as part of the American experience. Um, 
I find that sort of sad that 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 connection to all of those people. There was something interesting to me about that, for instance, as a kid, and I grew up with my parents and my grandparents, that I'd sit and talk with my grandfather, and he's talking mm-hmm. about things that I would have no knowledge yeah. of. And, and yeah. we would talk and laugh about things and whatever it may be, and 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 he what he finds funny and what I found funny sometimes would differ. And sometimes I'd find something that I'd really kind of connect with. And it was sort of interesting because it wasn't like just your father. It's a, a, a generation that was like, wow, that was a real long time ago. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He would, he would tell me about things that don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, I think that that was sort of in, in that film, that was always intriguing to me, the, that extended family and the, the generations of it all. Yeah, and the idea of America seems to pop up in some of these films, too, in an interesting way. It sounds like it's silly. My, my, my no. grandfather, you know, uh, you know, was born in Russia, and then he came to America in, in his late teens. Hmm. And he would, he would sing a song, and I always thought it was... Um, some Russian, you know, <laughs> folk song. And uh-huh. he would go like, you know, you ever see a dream, you know, walking, that I did, I did, I did, I did, I was that kind of thing. So it was like uh-huh. some kind of Russian folk song. And then <laughs> when I was in my 20s, all of a sudden I actually heard the song. It was a song that Bing Crosby used to sing. Hmm. And it was not a folk song. It was a song, it was a very American song. And mm-hmm. somehow the idea that he could take that song, loved it, and sang it as if it was some kind of Russian folk song. Sure. <laughs> I was like amazed to see how, in a sense, people who came from different parts of the world could sure. all like, connect to the American culture in ways that you don't expect in terms of songs and lyrics and all of this, yeah. but carried a little bit of like the tune that they would hear in their head from their youth in a way yeah you do this beautifully at the end of this film with god bless america the i'll say spanglish but you know the, the yiddish version of spanglish or whatever is it the part polish part american it's it just it's yiddish you know uh, which was yeah big. oh i was right yeah, it's yeah yiddish, went, all, went all through um you know eastern europe but it was a, a beautiful moment in a beautiful film uh, i mean that's one of the things that's in terms of this country and we're going through such turmoil now and everything mm-hmm. else but, you know, to the people who came here and adapted to our ways of, of American, you know, so in other words, you take a song like God Bless America, which is about, is, is about as American a song as you can have, yeah. written by, you know, Irving Berlin, you know, a mm-hmm. Jew who I think came from Eastern Europe, I believe, you know. Yeah. And so he writes this extremely American song. And an atheist, I think. Was he? I well, didn't know that. Uh, well, it's God Bless America. Yeah. And I think it was an atheist writing it, too, which is, that's another layer. <laughs> and, and that's part of what makes this country, you know, so so fascinating. And it all, in some ways, it, it, it there's something sad that we're sort of tearing ourselves apart yeah. right now uh, in so many ways. It is interesting that that America, the promise for so many people, you know, whether it was people leaving Europe during World War II or even before that. And, you know, from my experience as African-American, you know, feeling America wasn't delivering on its promise, you know, but but the promise has always been at the center of it, you know, and I wonder if the world views America in that way anymore, you know, that the promise is part of it, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know if we're in a shift in that or not. I don't know. It's a good. It's a good question to say how how do how are we viewed as opposed to how we were once mm-hmm. viewed. I, I, it's a good question. I'm not sure. Barry, you have to answer these questions. <laughs> what's uh what's coming up next for you Barry uh what what's your next passion project you know I did uh, the uh the earlier episodes of dope sick oh. you know this past oh, cool. year and uh, that Danny Strong wrote and that was on Hulu uh which did quite well and um so I came in for a few which was part of like setting it up and the casting of it I'm not doing that same thing now that here in New York for uh David E. Mm-hmm. Kelly on a a new piece that he has. And so I'm, I'm doing just that, you know, set it up and do the first few episodes and then move on. And then I hope to do a, a feature in the fall. So we'll see what happens. All right. Now you've gone seamlessly back and forth between television and film. Any difference for you? Do you prefer one over the other? It's all the same. Uh, to me, it's, uh, I mean, look, if you tell, if you're doing a feature and if it's on, whether it's streaming or theatrical, it's like, what's the story? And, you know, what's it about? I mean, that, that, that ultimately dictates whether you should do it or not, as opposed yeah. to, oh, well, this is going to be a theatrical versus, you know, streaming. Uh, that, that doesn't uh, bother me. Uh, it's really what is it about that intrigues me enough that I want to get into it? What are these people about? What, what kind of characters are they? And, uh, and, what, and the story you want to tell. In the early 90s, you know, we did uh, Homicide, you know, which ran for uh, seven years on NBC. I was uh, sent the book and, and you know, as it, to be a feature, but I said, no, I think it's better as a television uh, show mm-hmm. if we can do it in this particular way. And uh, that worked out well. Um, you know what? At the end of the day, it's what is it about that you're interested? It, it drives me all the time, you know, and it's a question I always ask writers. So just tell me, what is it about? Just put it in a sentence for me, you know, you know, and it's funny how many times people don't, it doesn't occur to them. So how can you not know that? How can you, I can't imagine not knowing that Barry. It's amazing to me, the people that don't answer that simple question or don't even think it's a question worth asking. No. So look, in the end of the day, you know, it's been fun. Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed it, you know, cause I never, I mean, look, I never thought of ever even being in this business. It never would have entered my mind in a million years. So the idea that I ultimately, however in such a confusion fashion that i ended mm-hmm. up you know doing it and and being able to enjoy it as like a it's a real kind of gift that it happened you know because yeah. some people know what they want to do when they grow up i had no idea right now i get a lot of people who want to be in the business who listen to this podcast so i always like to ask this question and i appreciate you taking your time here barry um so let me ask you, well, how did you get into the business? What was your break? What was this accident? How did that happen for you? I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a short answer to the thing. I was working in local television, but, you know, I was like a floor director and I worked with the hand puppets on the Ranger Hal show and things like that. So mm-hmm. and then at some point I decided and I ended up quitting and then I drove across country and I came to Los Angeles. I ended up down at the beach. And I was just hanging around at the beach. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I got some friendly with some guys. And at a certain point, uh, I needed another place to move into. And then uh, a couple of guys, we ended up, you know, getting another place. And um, there was this guy named George. There were like three of us, three, four of us, you know, in this little small place. And this guy, George, came up to me one day and 
he said, look, my car broke down and I need a ride up into Hollywood. And he said, can I, you know, borrow your car? And I said, well, I'll just drive you up. You know, I'll drive you up there. I haven't been up, I haven't been up to Hollywood. It didn't mm-hmm. go up there. I'm just at the beach. And so I drive him up there. <laughs> we park out this front. Crazy. And park out front. And he said, uh, come on in. I said, well, where are you going? He said, I just want to check out this little acting group. I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to wait here in the car. I don't want to get around this acting group. And he said, no, I will come out. I'm going to feel responsible if you're sitting out in the car. You know, it's, he drags me in. And there's an acting, you know, thing going on and et cetera. And it was pretty fascinating. There were some interesting little things they were doing, improvs and stuff sure. and all that. I said, oh, that was kind of fun. Anyway, so he, jo- he joined. So George and I were riding back and he said, why don't you join? I said, well, I don't want to do that. He said, it doesn't matter. You know, there's some good looking girls here. And, you know, it's a lively group of people. You know, you ought to just, we'll, we'll do it It'll, twice a week. It'll be okay. I'll drive sometime. You drive sometime. I said, but George, I have no interest in this with this acting group thing. I know oh, it'll be a kick, you know, we'll do it. So I think about it. And about two days later, I go up there. I go talk to the, the guy who runs the group. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I want to join. And I said, but I don't want to do anything. He said, what do you mean you don't want to do anything? <laughs> I just want to watch. <laughs> I, just, I want to watch. That's what I want to do. I just want to watch. He said, well, you just can't watch. You have to participate. If you don't want to participate, you don't, don't, don't be involved in it. So I finally, you know, really reluctantly, all right, well, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join. So then I joined, and then we're going back and forth, you know, twice a week. I drive George. Right. Within two months, George is bored. He's tired. But he'd rather, like, sit around. You know, he's, you know, smoking, you know, you know, some pot watching, you know, television. He's not that interested. You know, he's you know, then he's dealing a little bit of pot and whatever. And he's, that's that he's more busy with that and not doesn't want to go. And I keep going. And one day I said to George, I said, George, I'm going to move up into Hollywood because it's an hour up and back twice a week. You know, and you're not going to the class anymore. I'm going to I'm going to get closer to the, you know, to the group. And so. I move out. And then when I tell people nowadays, when you moved out then, there was no way to communicate with the person because there's no phone and there's no other way to, you know, get connected. And so when people say, so you did, you got into the acting group and I I said, I started doing that and that sort of evolved. And then in the class was a guy named Craig T. Nelson and we would do little Mm -hmm. improv things together. And at one point, and I was really broke and he was as well. And I said, what about maybe we can put some material together. We can play one of the little clubs here and make a few dollars or whatever. So we put some material together and we started, uh, you know, you know, doing that and we're making a few bucks, but Craig didn't want to do, you know, stuff in nightclubs and neither did I. And then he, we, we sort of let that drift away. And then we ended up getting into, you know, writing on a local show. And then that led to one thing after another. And then Craig pursued, you know, drama. And then I had the dramatic acting right. and things. And I started doing things, et cetera. And somebody said, so what happened to George? I said, well, I never saw George again. I never saw him from the time that I moved <laughs> out to Hollywood because I couldn't find him. So anyway, all those things and that my career basically took off from that little acting group, you know. And then that wow. led to, you know, writing and then the writing led to working with Mel Brooks, which ultimately led to directing and writing and directing and producing all of those things. And I go to the movies one day with my, with my wife. We go see this movie, Blow, 
And it's, a, you know, it's at the be- begins with the beach. And then I hear a name, hey, George, such a George. And I'll be like, George, and a beach and whatever. And then anyway, this George turns out to be, you know, uh, his name was George Young, which is the, who became in the story, this film, true story, the largest cocaine dealer in North America, right? Now, so I'm watching wow. it. I said to my wife, that's George. That's the George. That's the George when I told you about getting the thing and going to the acting group. It was that George that got me involved to go to the acting group, right? That's George, wow. right? Now, so he's, he's away for like 18 <laughs> years in prison, you know, because the way the film ends, he's away. He's in prison for, you know, dealing and all this stuff, cocaine. And so I see we're in something I, that he, he got out after all those years. I call him up on the phone and I said, George, blah, 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 and I, et cetera. I saw this movie Blow with Johnny Depp and et cetera. And he says, yeah. And he says, you know, what's interesting? When I, one of the times I got arrested and I'm being taken into the police station, I'm in handcuffs and I'm up at the desk there and there's a TV screen and I, I'm looking and it's the Academy Awards are on. And then it says, best director for Rayman, Barry Levinson. And he said, I'm looking at that. And he said, you know what flashed in my mind was you saying, George, you got to stop with this drug stuff. And you get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing, just think of the incredible cocaine dealer you could have become, Barry. That's the way I see the story. This is opportunities lost in your life. Jesus Christ. That's a great story. Barry, thank you so much. Guys, The Survivor, HBO, it's such a moving film. Uh, This portrait of a man tortured by, you know, this complicated past, you know. And the issues, we're kind of going through PTSD now, coming out of the pandemic. And, I mean, there's a war raging in Europe. There's so many emotional you know, similarities I think people are experiencing now. So I think it really has a lot of resonance now, too. So bravo on a film well made once again. Thank you. Thanks again, Barry. Appreciate it.